Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. We're thrilled to welcome today Kane McCleary, founder and managing partner at KDT Ventures, the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. It's great to be here, Chaz and Eric. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks so much, Kane. Um, so let's get, kick things off. Uh, can you please share a brief intro with us on your background in KDT Ventures? Sure thing. So KDT Ventures focuses at the intersection of compute and data science and biology and chemistry. We like to say that we, we focus on the physical layer of the world where so many folks before us have been focused either on, say, single therapeutic assets within the physical layer or digital assets within the software layer or part of the world. I myself am a physician scientist, trafficked through many a lab, have pushed lots of liquid around, started my investment career, though, in 2010, and uh, since then, have invested in a, in a number of different companies uh, at this intersection of compute and biology across not only medicine, but also chemicals and agriculture. But super excited to, to be here today. And I should also say that at KDT, we really focus at, at seed. We think the seed ecosystem for biology and the life sciences in general is underserved. And we like to be those technical investors and partners to a variety of, of different venture firms out there, as well as our entrepreneurial partners. Fantastic. So throughout your career, what has been your North Star, that guiding principle or common thread that ties all of your work together? Yeah, so it, this may be a, a little different than many of the other folks that, that you've interviewed, but for me, and it sounds corny, but I, I firmly believe that my North Star is that kindness and love compounds. And it's, it's a compounding factor in everything I try to do in my life, be it the financial, you know, investing services side of, of my life or at home with my wife and kid and, and family. Um, but we have, a, we have a phrase here at the firm, and it might be because we have so many physician scientists here, but that we try to apply the Hippocratic Oath to investing. And so much of the Hippocratic Oath in the line that folks know from that is to do no harm. And we've really instilled that and, and chosen and built a team and a firm around the fact that there isn't enough compassion in investing in the sciences. And so much is sort of underwritten or distilled down to teams and markets and technology but I've found that both within the venture ecosystem as well as the entrepreneurial ecosystem, that compassion and, and kindness really compounds and founder empathy allows you to become an integral part of those teams that we invest in, which is important to both effectuate and influence change when things are going wrong, as well as to, to continue to be that, that first call or partner for these founders as they go through really difficult times and, and try to do the impossible. And so that, that's my North Star, Eric. 
that's that's really excellent. And I think that story really resonates with me. I think um, the work we do as venture capitalists ultimately is to support something bigger than us, uh, bigger than any one individual, and, and really something that advances the entirety of humanity in, in, in some positive, meaningful way. So um, I think that's that's really beautiful. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, of um, course. One question we like to ask our guests uh, comes from Dennis Gabor, who's an electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. Uh, and and Dennis, Dr. Gabor says, the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. So please share with us, what does inventing the future mean to you, Kane? Yeah, well, they didn't have the data science techniques back in 71 that we do now. So I don't know if you would change that sentence a little. But if I had to think about inventing the future, you know, the phrase really natively lends itself to science, because that's really what science is about, is understanding and distilling insights to allow us to then invent the future on top of those insights. And so the way that we think about it is we're living in an era today where we have massive data sets being produced, whether it be through genomics, radiomics, any of our um, health data, or a variety of other different data generation sources. And when you combine that with high throughput experimentation, you all of a sudden have insights that we only once dreamed of. Um, and we, we continue to see that accelerate. And so to us, the inventing of the future is really built on the shoulders of the insights derived from a combination of data and then throughput of like hypothetical experimentation, if you will. And so that's sort of the broad meta way that we think about invent inventing the future, Eric. Can you give us a little bit more on, on KET? How'd you all get started? What's the genesis? Yeah, so um, back actually in, in 2010 was when I, I started my investment career. Um, I had a, a buddy out of undergrad that was starting a company in one Kendall Square in Boston. I happened to be at the NIH at the time uh, studying non-coding RNAs. And, you know, <laughs> basically gene sequencing was not at a point in which we could really study non-coding RNAs in high throughput. So my buddy ended up giving me these particles that he had made that could measure a variety of, of different RNA species. I used them. I became the first user of them. And he said, hey, we're raising a seed round. And I said, I didn't, I didn't know we're planting trees here. I thought we were studying RNAs. And he said, no, 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 we need sort of our first um, individual investors here in the round. Is there any way that you could help us find those folks? And that was really the introduction to investing for me. So I gave him really what summer job money I had to, to help seed fund a company called Firefly Bioworks. And if you fast forward about five years later, that company exited to Abcam, a publicly traded company over in the UK. And I, I was addicted at that point in time. I absolutely loved the translational aspects of entrepreneurial science and decided to switch my career from being an academic physician scientist over to an, an, an investor um, and an early stage investor in these life sciences companies. Now, I interfaced a lot with a variety of firms between the years of call it 2010 and 2017, all while you know being in residency and decided in 2017 to, to launch KDT because the acceleration in that data and throughput and the insights derived off of both of those just became too great to ignore. And I didn't feel like there were enough folks at Seed that were trying to enable and capture the value that was being created at the time. And so, you know, ended up starting uh, KDT as a solo GP, actually in Asheville, North Carolina, you know, not, not quite a biotech hub and uh, raised a, a fund just south of $20 million. And um, 
And the rest is, is kind of now history. And I think that it becomes overwhelmingly obvious to those that are involved in the ecosystem right now that the, the insights that are being derived by, by science are, are really powering and enabling the future as well as, as enabling us to react to, to what's a, a pretty significant pandemic right now. And so that's, that's the general genesis of, of KDT. Keen there kind of to build on top of that, um, you talked a little bit about your approach to investing. How did you arrive to your thesis? Yeah, so a lot of it was based around my training in, in pathology. I know we may get to that in this conversation, but for those that aren't familiar, pathologists, we like to say are, are the doctor's doctor. Like you never see them. They're consulting with all the other doctors in uh, the hospital. And whether you're getting a, a lab test or a tissue sample taken, or even a blood transfusion or an autopsy performed, we're the folks that do all of that. And, and what I saw was a, a specialty that was stuck really in the early 1900s. And to be specific, you know, we take slides of tissue, we put them under a microscope and we match them to wallpapers that we had memorized in our head. And what was so interesting was right at the time that I was training, we were starting to embed a variety of different molecular genetic diagnostic techniques into our lab. And it was readily apparent that two things were going to happen. One, that Molecular diagnostics were going to take a large portion of the prognostication and sort of diagnostic specificity that existed within pathology. Secondarily, we have all of these images that we as dumb humans have just been matching the wallpapers in our head. And why aren't we saving and studying those images as a small part of a much larger data corpus, which you know, is centered around the patient, whether that be longitudinal clinical records or lab values. Um, and it was readily apparent that these intersections of, of data streams were going to power medicine going forward. And, and as I sat and thought, it was obvious that it wasn't just medicine that was being affected by this data generation, but also actually chemicals and agriculture, because if you take a step back, it was really our understanding of biology and chemistry that was going through a Cambrian explosion um, during this time and, and really still is. And so during that time, you know, I, I was lucky to be surrounded by a lot of really smart folks on Sand Hill that I was able to learn from and test hypotheses with for the thesis. Um, and that actually led in, in 2013 to an investment in a company that's actually going public today, Zymergen, that, that really is, is a prototype of what you can do when you combine biology and chemistry with data science. And to build on that, kind of, let's go maybe a little more under the hood here. What was it like starting a VC fund? What are some of the highlights, lowlights, maybe lessons learned? Really, can you just demystify this for our listeners? Yeah, of course. So um, I can try. It's hard. It's really, really, really hard. Um, I think that a lot of investors are lucky that they can step into a firm that has a dependable capital base, that has a brand, that has a variety of past investments that they can point to. Thus, I, I think that you know, starting a firm is, is much like starting a company, uh, which I think gives folks like ourselves, Chaz, 
intense founder empathy for what founders are going through in their creative process, as well as in, in their fundraising process. And, you know, I, I essentially, I called in every social capital favor I had during that period in time. I, I was not, you know, blessed to, to come from a family that knew a lot of these mystical beasts known as limited partners that oversee large pools of capital that allocate to venture. And so I was lucky enough to have folks within the venture ecosystem that believed in me and that opened their networks to me. And so cobbling together that first amount of money took about a year. It was hard. You get rejected a lot, about as many times I bet as founders get rejected in their early stage rounds. But I learned during that process that just like in life, there's many different flavors of limited partners and folks that, that back you. And I really wanted to use that North Star of, of compassion and kindness to drive the limited partner relationships that I, I chose to have, as well as the capacity to grow with me. Because the plan wasn't always to be a solo GP. The plan was to run a full stage or a full stack seed firm. And so I probably could have taken some shortcuts, given away some value in the firm in terms of ownership or other things, but have always tried to take a longer view of, of what we're trying to build here at KDT. And that took a while to do. And I was lucky enough to be able to, to fully focus my efforts for a year on, on that fundraising, while at the same time, I mean, to be totally honest, I was putting up my personal capital to invest and seed companies that I was warehousing to bring into the fund. Because part of the, the trick when you're a first-time GP is to allow these limited partners that invest in your fund to have line of sight into what the portfolio looks like. And so a lot of that work is done by warehousing deals that you will then bring into the, the funded cost, but that's, that's costly. And, you know, it was, there were some scary conversations around the kitchen table with my wife when we hadn't had our first close, but I was outlaying capital in a, in a portfolio that may or may not be backed by other investors that end up investing in the fund. But in the end, I'm, I'm you know, lucky to say that, that we made it through that and, and have since been able to scale. Thanks for those insights, Kane. Um, I think very few people have really gone through this process the way you have and uh, appreciate the words of wisdom for those that'll come, um, come next in, in doing so. But really, I think as well about the fund from an archetype and, and quality of people in your portfolio, I think you, you stand out for another reason as well. KDT is based in, in Austin. Can you talk to us about kind of the motivation behind this choice and why maybe others would want to base their funds outside of the traditional hubs of, of Boston and San Francisco? Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and Chaz, as I say this, who knows if I'm right or wrong about it, but um, I, I at least have a theory. And part of that comes from the fact that I grew up as an outsider. I grew up in rural Tennessee. No one in my family was a scientist. And so have always had to think fairly independently about things, figure things out for myself. I'm also an only child. I don't have any siblings. And so you could say I've always been on, on somewhat of an island. But Austin was a, 
a strategic move in, in our mind. So I obviously spent time in Silicon Valley. I've spent time in Boston. And what I loved about those ecosystems is the concentration of talent. But what I missed in those ecosystems was really a, a feeling of, of independent culture. There, there is a culture there. However, I think that more and more we've seen over the last couple of years that the culture is somewhat homogenous in many ways. And I do think that diversity and thought and opinion is a superpower. And something that Austin brings to the table is a long, rich history in the computer sciences and chip making parts of the world. So it's a high tech city but it has a vibrant arts and music scene. Also, there are a number of synthetic biology firms here at at UT that we think are underappreciated. And the fact that there was no one here that was focused on early stage computational biology and chemistry, we saw that as a white space. And we thought that we could really be a catalyzing or galvanizing force in the ecosystem to bring all of these amazing nerds together, right? And to, to really be able to, to enjoy and, and build this ecosystem. Now, there are a number of, of more practical um, reasons why Austin for us made sense beyond just getting out of what folks may consider the group think of, of the coastal cities. And one of those reasons is, you know, Texas has the largest medical center in the United States in Houston. Texas also has a large grant called CPRIT that they issue every couple years, which is a billion dollar bond that goes to cancer prevention and research. And so it's, it's well-funded. And then thirdly, you know, this is a personal reason I could get to board meetings on either coast quite easily. And I think it's important for us to be flexible in our investments and be geographically agnostic. And I I just worried that being in one of these cities where everyone's investing in in sort of the same companies that are in their backyard didn't allow the flexibility to learn new paradigms. Because as you know, I think Chaz better than anyone else is there's a difference between a Boston-based science company and a San Francisco-based science company or a San Francisco-based science company and a, you know, Philly-based science company. And Um, There's a lot of different paradigms and playbooks, and I think that we as investors need to constantly learn from the different geographies, why they function the way that they do, and be able to take those learnings and distribute those across a portfolio. And you bring up portfolio, Kane. We've talked a little about kind of the fund genesis and and motivations behind uh, your thesis. Let's dive in more on the portfolio side. What does the archetype of of a KDT company look like? And can you share a few examples with us as well? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, the way that we typically describe it is, is there's two main types of companies in our fund. One where data science typically combined with some type of high throughput experimentation or wet lab side of the business allows us to understand biology in ways that were previously inaccessible. I think that An example of that, or a couple examples of that, one could be Path AI um, in Boston, where we're taking blended patient data from biopharmaceutical companies. So you can imagine whether folks responded to a drug or not, their age, their gender, and combining that with 
tissue samples that are analyzed through computer vision techniques. And so you can actually take an image, break it down to its mathematical requisite parts and start to find representations within that image that allow us to understand biologically what's happening on the tissue at, at a, a, a layer that's far deeper than we were ever able to do as humans. And, and the output of that is you can have better prognostication, you can have you know, real-time decision support within pathology, and the ultimate outcome is obviously to replace the, the pathologist. And that, that's a great example of where we can combine data with some type of high throughput image analysis platform and start to understand biology in novel ways. Another example within that on the wetware side of things would be a company like Dino Therapeutics up in Boston as well, where we're using computation to, to help us understand and prospectively design adeno-associated virus vectors for gene therapy in a high throughput manner. And so that's one archetype. So where does data science allow us to understand these things? The second archetype is now that we understand more on how biology and chemistry works, how can we prospectively program that? And so you can really think of biology as its own form of compute in a lot of ways. And so a great example of that is a, is a company up in Connecticut that we've invested in called Azitra, which is utilizing specific bugs on the skin, specifically staph epidermidis, which is the most common bug that lives on our skin, to produce therapeutic proteins at sites of injury. So you could imagine having a cream with a staph epidermidis that's programmed to make some type of protein at a site of injury and you rub that cream on your arm. And all of a sudden it makes, you know, IL-10 or Lecti or filaggrin or some protein that helps to treat at the site of origin. But what's so interesting is you can start to embed all kinds of different control functions on top of that. And what I mean is you could start to, to use computer language embed circuits into this. And so instead of just having the bug make the protein on the skin, perhaps you could have it say, if there's disease, then make protein. So these if this, then that statements are super powerful in biology. Um, and we're starting to, to see those across our portfolio. Another one that you can think of in terms of prospectively programming biology or biology as its own form of compute within the material science space is Checkerspot out in Emeryville, which is utilizing heterotrophic microalgae. So the, the algae that feeds on sugar, not the type in the Exxon commercials that feeds on the sun. And they're programming those to, to animate and produce materials that have never been able to... To, to be produced at, at scale. And so there's so many different avenues as we, we start to think about what we can do prospectively programming biology. And I think that we'll get into cell and gene therapy as an example of that as well, where we literally are able to put in living computers where the output is a material or some type of therapy. Um, but they're, they're smart organisms and they're only smart because of that prior portfolio type company that allows us to understand biology first. So we need both of these. Although I think that as time moves on, more and more of our investments will be on the prospective programming side of things because we'll soak up more and more of the knowledge of how biology and chemistry works, if that makes sense. 
And, and behind this portfolio came the heroes, the brave souls, if you will, the founders that lead these ventures. There's been a lot of talk about kind of a, a new breed of biotech founder lately, kind of being someone that has a very sharp technical background with a specific area, but also a strong data background as well. Can you talk about kind of what makes up a great biotech founder in your eyes? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, those are great points, Chaz. And I think that to us, those are somewhat table stakes, having the, the technical acumen. I, I, again, at risk of, of sounding soft, we, we tend to index on the founder side for some, some more opaque skills. One is a commercial mindset. So it's not enough to just be technical, but you have to have some type of commercial insight that's going to allow you to aim your technology in an area of white space. And we've seen, we see so many amazing technologies, but it's very rare to have that founder that has a commercial insight or aha on where their technology fits within the market and how it fits there and why it fits there. Oftentimes we see founders try to use you know, a, a advisory member as a proxy for some type of commercial expertise or experience, but we really like to dive in at seed to see whether or not that commercial mindset exists in the founder at that time. Because if we're really going to underwrite them and we want to, as the long-term CEO of this company, we're not an arch or an atlas. Like we're not going to bring in executive management teams to replace these founders. We believe that the undergrad, the PhD, the postdoc can run these companies, but you have to really yearn and hunger for that commercial insight. Secondly, you know, persistence. I think in the same way that, that folks like yourself and myself have had to start our firms and be persistent and run through every single wall that's been put in front of us, we want to see proxies for persistence. Those that have had an easy life are typically not the ones that when things go wrong are just going to continue to march forward. So we look for proxies of, of persistence. And the third thing is we love creativity and it's great to have sort of technical background and acumen, but the application of the technology in a creative manner and obviously in a commercially applicable manner is, is sort of the third axis that we look for in these, these great biotech founders if that makes sense. I'll pass it off to Eric to talk about uh, a new type of company archetype in, in, in platforms. Yeah, thanks, Jess. So Kane, can you please help us uh, set the record straight? What is a platform company? It's getting all the ragey days in the eyes of uh, KDT and how do you define what a platform company is? I think generally we think of platforms as this. The more info that is generated, so the more data, the more information, the more insights generated around a specific area of science enables and empowers further products to be generated faster, cheaper, of higher quality. And you can sum all of that up really as you can generate future assets more efficiently based on your prior insights. Now, that may be specifically a definition of an efficient or effective platform, but those are the types of platforms that, that we look for. 
are the types of platforms that accelerate. Certain platforms, you know, I think can generate many, many assets, but very few have, you know, what I think has been in the software space defined as like a network effect in a way. That network effect for us is the acceleration of insights, enabling an acceleration in the commercializing of assets. Eric, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And maybe we can expound upon that idea a little bit more and diving more specifically into this concept of platform disease fit. So our colleagues at Andreessen, ABC have talked extensively on this topic of platform disease fit. Um, what does platform disease fit mean for you and how do companies find it? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that we take a little bit of a more broad approach because again, we focus not only on medicine, but also on areas of the world, like, like chemicals and agriculture. And to us, the, the platform disease fit mantra, I think could fit into, there are likely specific insights generated from platforms that are more valuable in one area of the world than other areas of the world. So to, for example, you know, you could think of a platform like Teray, which is an AI generated small molecule combined software wetware platform. And you could aim that platform at biopesticides if you wanted to generate small molecules that could drug plants. But the value of that platform within that space is not as high as if you start to aim that platform at specific therapeutic indications. And so, again, it comes back to that commercial insight or aha moment to understand where value lies within the ecosystem, how to capture it, and whether or not your platform is best based for that. So like I, you could use foundation medicine as an example, right? So foundation medicine, to be honest, is likely best used for diagnostics, not therapeutic development. Now they could have set up the company and aimed at therapeutic development and they're an adjuvant to therapeutic development, but the white space that they were able to aim their platform at and, and able to capture really existed within, within diagnostics. And so for us, it's really a value trade-off equation when thinking about platform and disease or platform and indication fit, Eric. That's, that's fantastic. And, and really, it's, it's a bigger problem of not platform disease fit, but platform, platform problem fit. It's really, a, you know, the, the new biotech version of um, product market fit in a sense. Exactly. Um, I mean, when the whole world's your oyster, right? And you kind of have infinite possibilities, you have to start somewhere and you have to boil the ocean. And so developing some heuristics or understanding around differential value on where you could go is, is really how I think you drill down and start to define what that platform problem fit is. Yeah. So, so where do we think about where to start? You know, you talked about this commercial, this business acumen that, you know, the best founders should have. Um, wh where do we start as, you know, let's put ourselves in the shoes of being a founder. How do we start with that problem of, uh, you know, which problems to target? Yeah. I mean, so some of it, some of it is hopefully um, gained from the, the training and technology development uh, that happened prior to the launch of the company, but right around launch of company and, and just prior to, there should be a very intensive customer discovery process that allows you to understand who your customers are, 
what they're looking for and how you're differentiated in market. Now, the customer discovery process within, let's say, drug development could involve talking to larger biopharmaceutical companies, figuring out what they're most interested in, trying to intersect your platform with their future research and development spin so you can sign those early joint development agreements or partnerships. Or it could look, you know, customer discovery could also be where is their white space in the therapeutic indication area? And we always encourage the folks that want to own fully owned assets instead of partnering them off to go ahead and write their clinical trial. Like what would the indication be that you're going to go after? What would a success in a phase three trial look like? And then work your way backwards, right? Into what you have to do every step of the way to get to that clinical or therapeutic success. That's its own form of quote, customer discovery. The customer in that case is your eventual patient, but the analysis is fairly similar, Eric. So it really comes down to, again, trying to create buckets or heuristics around how you're going to develop your early assets um, and where that's going to intersect in the world for, you know, in five, seven, 10 years from now, which is a really, really difficult phenomenon. But the best way to do it is to talk to as many people as possible is the way that we've seen. I think that's really insightful. And it really speaks to the importance of market research and really understanding what the problems, unmet needs in your market are before you establish, you know, what technologies you're going to use to address those issues. And I think that's actually a complete reversal of, of where biotech has really been for for a lot of the, the, the past 15, 20 years, um, you know, really thinking about what the problems, uh, the most important problems are to, uh, to solve first, and then going on to what the solutions are after that. So, so with that in mind, I wonder if you could share with us, what do you think are the, the grand challenges of healthcare right now that um, need to be addressed uh, going forward? Oh man, there's so many, you know, some of the ones that are top of mind recently at our firm have centered around legislation and regulation. And Specifically, as more and more techniques involve artificial intelligence, as well as live programmed biotherapeutic products, the question then becomes, are our current regulatory frameworks sufficient for enabling these new therapies and treatment modalities? And that question is, you know, remains to be seen, but I I just, I think that, you know, a great example of how fast we can move has been our, our response to this pandemic. There's no reason why we can't move this fast when developing many other assets in the therapeutic realm, other than the regulatory hurdles that need to be overcome in the development of, of a therapy. And so I think that regulatory change as well as guidance is a big shortcoming or gap right now. And the hope is now that the world is focused on science and really has been for the last year because of the pandemic, that we're going to see systemic change in both early scientific funding as well as enablement of unique regulatory frameworks and processes for these types of assets. Those could include things like in of one trials that we're starting to see, particularly among a, a, a decent swath of rare disease therapies that are, that are coming onto the market. I think two, 
on the legislation side of things, something that we're going to see coming out of the, the place that we are today is continued America first focus on the supply chain. So the supply chain is obviously an issue and we've seen what a exacerbated supply chain can do to the world, both on non-medical stuff like chips right now, as well as on the medical side of things, whether it be you know vaccines or PCR testing or other things like that. And I, I think that understanding and enabling those supply chains with new companies that figure out ways in which to safely and effectively manufacture um, and distribute the types of therapies and diagnostics that I think we're able to make today is, is going to have to be a legislative priority. And so again, that plays into both legislation and regulation for us. And then the last thing is, because of how fast therapies are able to be developed and the amount of money within the therapeutic realm right now, Clinical trial management um, is becoming difficult, particularly in areas of intensive uh, interest like immunotherapy and cancer. I think if you look at, you know, let's call it PD-1 trials when it's PD-1 plus X or PD-1 plus Y or a different regimen, there's over a thousand of those out there. Well, there's only so many cancer patients and so many academic centers that can run these trials. And so whether it be new versions of clinical trial sort of frameworks that exist like virtual clinical trials or pushing clinical trials out to community medical centers is, you know, is something that, that we can think about or really the, the global nature of science. So now that these tools are, are democratized and regulatory frameworks are, are well known at least, we should be able to run clinical trials ex-US or outside of the US to accelerate US-based biotherapeutic development. And so again, that's going to require buy-in at the, the national governmental level. Um, but it's it's something that we think about a lot as a shortcoming right now, or, or at least a road bump or, or a speed bump in, in the, the current acceleration of, of life sciences innovation. Fantastic. Thanks, Kane. Um, just one last question along these lines of commercialization of platform uh, tech. So with a lot of these platform tech companies, a lot of the early value is generated through um, pharmaceutical partnerships. And actually a, a prime example of this is one of your portfolio companies, Dino Therapeutics, actually has um, two deals with big pharma companies that have you know, worth over potentially $2 billion. Um, so what should startups be aware about when they're seeking these early pharma partnerships? Yeah, you know, we actually have a great medium post around this written by my partner, Mac Healy, here at the firm, who is a former corporate attorney. And again, the way that us simpletons try to break this down is, is there's some type of, of value exchange that happens. And so the earlier that you partner something, the less value you're able to hold on to as a, a therapeutic company. So maximizing sort of one, how long you can wait and giving yourself optionality in those partnerships is super important. It's never enough to have one partner at the table. You always need two to create a market for that partnership, which can help drive value or at least your negotiation strength over to the startup rather than the biopharmaceutical partner. Secondly, you know, understanding research and development priorities of your bio, potential biopharmaceutical partner is of the utmost importance, which goes back to that customer discovery to really understand 
um, who's interested in what and at what level of the organization are they interested in this? Is this a single scientist that thinks it's a really cool good possible application or is it someone at the C-suite level that sees it as, as the future of their biopharmaceutical company? Secondly, I think on the platform side of things, we've seen typically one larger, call it indication agnostic deal that is inked early in the life cycle of one of our companies, meaning that you know, that first partnership may give away five, 10 targets that like you don't even know about right now, but you're going to discover. However, I think it's really detrimental to do more than one of those. Only one partner should ever be able to extract that much sort of ambiguous value out of your platform. And as quickly as possible, you should start to, to drill down and understand what are the insights that are coming out of your platform and how can you develop the sort of develop a value matrix of where to partner when and how that allows you to maximize internal value? And I think that's something that Dino has done really well to optimize across very specific axes. So you could imagine sort of tropism and indication as one of those axes to try to give away as little of the world real estate on your platform per deal as possible, such that you maintain or retain maximum value internally, Eric. Uh, and, and Kane, before we come to a close, a few rapid fire questions to, to cap things off here. So in terms of baseball, we're in a nine inning analogy to what is the tech bio revolution. In this nine inning analogy, where do you think we are now? And how do you see this, this influx of interest and capital coming into the space playing out? Oh man, I knew I couldn't get through a podcast without a sports analogy, Eric. Let's see. So, man, if if we're if we're in a nine inning game, I would I'd handicap us at let's say the the top of the third right now. I think that we are we've just started to generate the the types of data that are readily ingestible by the forms of compute and data science that I think will be most impactful to our understanding of biology and mechanistically how things are working. However, we have a long way to go. The systematic programming of biology, I would say, where we can then take those insights and, you know, formulate whether it be living therapies or develop, you know, AI generated small molecules or proteins against them, embedding of logic into these types of things, how to manufacture them at scale and at a cost that's tenable to us as a public is another issue that that we have to get to. And actually, you know, the way that we see getting to let's call it the the next inning to get to the fourth inning. We think that more and more of the insights are going to interestingly become like smaller and smaller in nature. So what I mean by that is we've studied sort of macrobiology being regulatory networks and proteins. And then we've started to understand sort of how they interact. However, the actual interaction of molecules at the molecular level is still fairly unknown to us. So the oscillations of a protein, for example, or how different, you know, charge sides of, of 
you know, intracellular proteins interact with our um, membrane bound proteins. And so more and more of our understanding of biology may actually start to come from physics, which is something that, that we think about a lot here at the firm. And so the, the continued generation of these sort of smaller nanoscale data sets and the tools and resolution in which we can generate those, I think are going to continue to push us forward. And then as we talked about, the supply chain needs to keep up with the, the number of interesting therapeutic modalities that we can develop that, that really is only accelerating in time course right now. And Kane, kind of as we talk about the prediction scheme of things, maybe to ground a little bit further, can you describe where biotech in your eyes in 2050, where will we be? Oh, man. So just to set the stage here, so 2050 is approximately 30 years from now. About 12 years ago was when I got my first iPhone. And just to think about how quickly the compute power and what I'm able to do with that iPhone how quickly that's happened over the last 12 years makes me think that in 2050, the, the world is just a, a totally different place in biology. I think we're still in the early days, like I said, let's call it third inning of biology. But I really think by then we're um, at, an, at a stage, particularly in therapeutics, where the understanding of the individual, meaning meeting a patient where they are for all of their different individual comorbidities, as well as having the tools in which to develop extremely personalized therapies is readily available to us. I think there are a number of diseases which once were thought of as fatal that have become chronic or may even be cured by that point in time. However, my guess is that at that point in time, we've unearthed a number of additional diseases where we are still in the early innings of being able to robustly develop therapies therein. And, and what I mean by that is something we talk about internally at the firm is if we think about cancer immunotherapy as a paradigm, you know, that, that's essentially turning the immune system up to do what it does best, which is fight cancer. However, we're still too early today and we're probably too early for a decade to understand what the long-term effects of turning the immune system up really is. And so you can imagine side effects or bystander effects like autoimmunity becoming um, increasingly important and prevalent in the, the society today, which then feeds on itself. We need to understand more about autoimmunity, even the new types of autoimmunity that we may be introducing to folks. And there's this sort of flywheel of understanding and progression of biology. That being said, I think we're going to be able to understand disease paradigms much faster. I think we're going to be able to design personalized therapies. And I also hope by 2050 that the, the reimbursement schema have, has changed significantly such that, such that the, the correct incentives for these types of individualized therapies, even if expensive, exist. Um, and we have solid techno-economic analyses to, to allow us to enable those reimbursement frameworks. Chaz. And, and Kane, it's been a fun time hosting you here. And to put a cherry on top of this wonderful conversation, uh, any closing thoughts or, or shameless plugs you'd like to share? 
No, I mean, shameless plugs is jazz on your side. We're just, you know, we're so happy and, and lucky that, that Alex and you and Eric and, and all of your team exists. Just, we love working with y'all. We're so excited to continue to enable and empower and invest and elevate the best science at the seed stage alongside folks like yourself. And just feel so lucky to be able to learn every day, not only for folks like y'all, but also from, from the founders that, that we try to support out there in, in the wild. So I just can't thank you enough, Chaz and Eric, for having me on here today. Likewise. Thank you, Ken. I hope we, we're in the first innings of our partnership here as well. Long road ahead. Um, fantastic and honored to work with folks like yourself. Um, to wrap us up here, how can our listeners learn more about your work if they're craving more? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, we have a, a mantra here that we, we try to be the nicest species out there. Um, you can always uh, reach out to us, whether it's through our website or LinkedIn or, or through our emails. Um, we also try to post writings on Medium around topics that are of interest to founders, including things like what does that first JDA look like? What does a right of first refusal really mean? And how can you negotiate that all the way to what are some macro themes that we see in the world? So feel free to, to, to look at that Medium post. And, um, and then the, the third way is come visit us in Austin. Any and everyone are welcome to our office here. It's really an, an open format. Um, we would love to see folks here in Austin. We happen to be right next to Franklin Barbecue, one of the best barbecue spots in Austin. So we'd love to see folks in person once the world opens up. You've enticed us with food now, Kane. That's, that's too tempting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well thank you Kane for an absolutely incredible episode I'm sure our listeners uh, are just waiting on pins and needles to to hop there and and go get a slice of barbecue with you Um, thanks for your time very grateful and appreciate you joining us today awesome thank you Chaz and Eric I hope you all have a great day and thanks a ton for the time awesome thank you again Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.